We have been in the book of Ephesians and have reached chapter 6 with the household codes, and we have taken a brief excursus from uh, chapter 6 in Ephesians to deal with singles, and I've already had a couple of sermons on singleness, and we'll continue through the remainder of uh, the month. Today, we want to look at relationships in biblical perspective. And I'm going to try to connect this to Ephesians, what we have been looking at, and uh, I, I pray that that connection is, is clear. But let's, uh, let's ask God to bless the hearing of his word. Father, we come to you and uh, recognize that this word, which you have caused to be written uh, by Moses and by the other authors uh, of the Old and New Testaments, um, are living and active And they are living and active because it was your spirit that caused them to commit to writing what you intended. So we take this as a word from you and pray that you would bring it in such a way that we would hear your voice and receive it and respond to it as the word of God. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Going to read uh, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 26 through the end of the chapter, and we'll be looking at a couple of other uh, verses in 2 and 3, and then uh, elsewhere, but Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the, birds of the hev- over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. <clears throat> and God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Three points uh, this morning. First of all, God and the gospel. Secondly, men and women are equal. And thirdly, men and women are different. So God and the gospel, um, men and women are equal, and men and women are different. And why that is not contradictory can be seen in our initial uh, point, which is about God, all right? God uh, is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are equal in power, substance, and glory, and yet they are different in their function one to another. If you look at verse uh, 27, uh, for example, all right? Uh, We're told there, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There is, in God, uh, there is both equality and functional 
subordination for a, a different word, submission if you want, or functional subordination. And uh, these two are not contradictory. We're told by women's fib proponents uh, in our days that if uh, a woman is not entirely, totally equal with man, uh, if he, she is called to be submissive to a man as a wife to a husband uh, or the church to Christ, uh, then she cannot be equal. This is just not true. And we take our starting point in God to see why it's not true. That God is one God in three persons. They are equal in power, substance, and glory. And yet the Son voluntarily submits to the Father and the Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. All right? That doesn't mean that they're not equal. John Frame, for example, has written uh, this, which is somewhat of an explanation. The church has officially denied the ontological subordination of Arianism. I threw that in for you theologues. It is affirmed economic subordination among the persons of the Trinity. That is, the persons of the Trinity voluntarily subordinate themselves to one another in the roles they perform in respect to creation. As we have seen, the Father sends the Son into the world. The Son joyfully obeys the Father's will. The Son does only what his Father gives him to do and even knows only what the Father gives him to know. In the end, he delivers up the kingdom to his father and himself becomes one of the subjects in his father's kingdom. When the spirit enters the world, he does not speak of himself, but only what he hears, presumably from the father and the son. So in God, we learn that equality and submission or subordination are not contradictory. It's very important, particularly for the society and the culture in which we live today. Now, what about the gospel? Well, a couple of comments, and Lord, help me be clear here and help everybody to follow along. We're reading in the opening chapters of Genesis about creation, all right, at the beginning, obviously, before sin enters into the world, all right? And God's creation at the beginning was the ideal pattern for men, women, and the whole human race. This is important because when we get to Ephesians, we need to keep uh, Genesis in the background of our thinking, all right? That Paul isn't starting out new as if uh, there was nothing previously taught about this uh, in the Bible. Um, this was the ideal pattern for men, women, and the whole human race. Adam, Adam, all right, the word literally means man or human, and Adam is the prototype of the whole human race. Paul tells us that Jesus is the second Adam, and uh, won't elaborate on that much more now. Eve, look at chapter 3 and verse 20. We don't learn the woman's name until we get to Genesis chapter 3, when Adam names her, all right? A significant event in and of itself, which we can't deal with, uh, unfortunately, this morning. Genesis 3.20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, unfortunately, because most of us don't study Hebrew uh, or even the Greek Septuagint, we're wondering, what? Huh? Eve, mother of all the living? Where, where did that come from? Well, you need to understand that Eve, the name Chava in Hebrew, means life. All right. In the Greek Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, all right, it was Zoe, all right, life, all right. So the name means life. So she is the mother of all the living because she is named life. All who are descended from her will be given life by her. And of course, ultimately, the seed of the woman will crush the 
the head of the serpent, all right, the seed of the serpent, and that is a prophecy. It's the first mention of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Now, why is that important? It's important not just to throw the gospel in there as some kind of throwaway evangelical reference. We want to squeeze the gospel in and shoehorn it in so we get some kind of sermonic integrity. But rather, when Adam names Eve life and the mother of all the living, it's because Adam has believed the gospel in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. God said, look at verse 15, all right? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between the serpent and the woman. Uh, uh, lost my place, sorry. And between your offspring, your seed, your descendants, and her offspring, her seed, her descendants. He, singular, seed, Jesus, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Which is exactly what happened at the cross. Satan schemed and devised and conspired to get Jesus crucified. He bruised his heel. But in that very act of crucifixion, as the cross is raised to the sky, Jesus is crushing the skull of Satan and conquers him victoriously as the gospel comes to fruition and fulfillment. So there's the gospel in Genesis 3.15 and verse 20. Adam names the woman Eve, life. He has believed the promise. He has believed what God said in verse 15 and designates or names his wife the mother of all the living, the one from whom all life will come, and the one from whom ultimately in fulfillment of that promise, the one will come who gives life to sinners who are dead in transgressions and sins and raises them to newness of life. Are you with me? Did I make that clear? Can I see it? A nod? Yeah. All right. Very good. All right. Okay. All right. So, the seed of Eve is Jesus Christ who gives new life to those dead in trespasses and sins. Jesus is the new Adam. He is the new head of the human race. This is what we had been looking at in Ephesians. Jesus fulfills God's original purpose in creation and makes in the church of Christians a new society for a new creation. There will be a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. I hope you caught that connection if you can remember. <clears throat> One author uh, that uh, has become uh, Jacob Mathai's favorite author, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Smith writes this. Is this it? Man and woman in Christ writes this. Therefore, the Christian people are the new humanity and should show by the way they live together what God intended the human race to be. First is that all teaching, Christian teaching on men and women, presupposes a new creation and a new nature. So we're looking at relationships in biblical perspective, and it presupposes a new creation and a new nature. The teaching is intended for the redeemed community, a new humanity, living under the headship of Christ and leading a transformed life in his spirit. The teaching in Scripture is not a teaching for contemporary society as it exists, but for a redeemed community of men and women living new lives in the power of the Spirit. The second implication, the goal of Christ's work is the creation of a new human race, one which lives the way God originally wanted the human race to live. Going back to Genesis, then, it is the model both for the Christian community and for the Christian family. 
And so as we talk about relationships in biblical perspective, this is not devoid of understanding in what exactly is going on here in Genesis and in Ephesians. I hope that's clear, all right? If not, pray about it, talk to me about it. Let's move on, though. Men and women are equal. Look at our text. Men and women, verses 26 and 27, chapter 1, are equally created in the image of God. Verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. Men and women are equally the image of God. All right? Woman no less so than man. Look at verse 28. Men and women are equally given the cultural mandate, the creation mandate, the dominion mandate, alternately called, verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Notice the first blessing in the Bible is not an orgasm. All right? It's children. It's children. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, every living thing that moves on the, uh, on the earth. So men and women are both given the cultural mandate. It's not as if men are given the cultural mandate and women are just along for the ride. No, they both have roles and responsibilities to play in carrying out the dominion mandate, that creation mandate, all right? Okay. And 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us that men and women are equal in salvation. They are joint heirs of eternal life, okay? All right, so we have equality. However, this is important, all right, because it's unique and it's a massive uh, contribution to civilization, all right? This teaching of the equality of men and women, what I've just laid out for you here in, in the beginning chapter of Genesis, all right, is responsible for raising the status of women wherever it has gone, all right? And the result has been the freedom of women and the dignity of women, all right? Contrast that with Islam, uh, for example. Uh, Alvin Schmidt, in his book, Under the Influence, What Difference Christ Has Made in the World and in Western Civilization, writes this. Contrasting Christianity and Islam. In Saudi Arabia, and I can attest to this, I lived there for three years. In Saudi Arabia, women are barred from driving an automobile. I believe that's changed in the past few years. But imagine, for centuries, women couldn't drive, right? In uh, summer of 1999, news reports reveal that women in Iran are forbidden to wear lipstick. And if they do, they can be arrested and jailed. We hear about some of this stuff with the Taliban now in Afghanistan, right? How women are treated, all right? Um, a man has the right to beat and sexually desert his wife, all with full support of the Koran, which says, and I quote, Surah 4:38, men stand superior to women, but those whose perverseness ye fear, admonish them and remove them into bedchambers and beat them. But if they submit to you, then do not seek a way against them. He goes on. This is the polar opposite of what the New Testament says regarding a man's relationship with his wife. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And he adds, he who loves his wife loves himself. The high and honorable marital ethic set forth in Ephesians cannot be found in the pagan literature of Greece or Rome or in the cultures of other societies. 
One scholar of ancient Rome has aptly said that the, quote, the conversion of the Roman world to Christianity brought a great change in women's status. Another expressed it even more succinctly. The birth of Jesus was the turning point in the history of woman. Men and women are equal, equally created in the image of God, equally given the dominion mandate, equal in salvation. And this has been the cause of raising, elevating the status of women wherever Christianity has prevailed. Don't let anybody ever tell you, as certain books and teachers are propagating in our day, that Christianity uh, demeans women. The exact opposite is true. But men and women are not only equal, men and women are different. They're different in roles, and they're different in responsibilities, and they're different in their natures. Look at Genesis, if, again, if you will. Look at chapter 2 and verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. If ever a true word was spoken, that's it. It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for women to be alone, all right? It's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, I don't want to get bogged down in the weeds of Hebrew exegesis here, so let's just deal with the key word here, which is fit for him, all right? Woman was made to be a helper fit for Adam, all right? And why was that? Because Adam could not fulfill the dominion mandate by himself. What was the dominion mandate? Be fruitful and multiply. No matter how hard people want to try or how hard people want to deny biology or how hard they want to say that I'm a woman in a man's body or whatever, men can't have babies, all right? Men can have, we have two doctors in the audience, you can talk to them afterward and confirm the biological and medical veracity of what I've just said, all right? Men can't have babies. So it was necessary for the woman to be fit for the man, all right, in order for them together to fulfill the cultural mandate, all right? Now, what I'd like to submit to you here is that when you turn to Genesis chapter 3, Sin enters into the world, the curse from God upon the three respective parties, the serpent, the man, and the woman, all right, apart from the serpent, the curse on the man and the woman are gender-specific. They're gender-specific. That is, they're gender-differentiated, okay? It tells us something very important about men and women being different. We've already said men and women are equal, but men and women are also different. Look with me, if you will, at Genesis chapter 3, all right? Look at um, verse 15 comes the curse on the serpent. Verse 16, to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This is the beginning of the war of the sexes. All right? We can't deal with that at the moment. We've dealt with it in the past. My point, simply pertinent to this particular sermon, is that 
The curse on the woman is gender-specific. It's in her childbearing capacity. It's in her ability, biologically, medically alone, to be fruitful and multiply. A man can't do that. All right? So the curse is gender-specific. We'll get to elaborate on this. Then look at verse 17. To Adam, to the man, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and eat the plant of the fields. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Again, the curse is gender-specific. It has to do with his role and his responsibility in the dominion mandate. God said, be fruitful, multiply, and exercise dominion over the created order. But who specifically was given that task? Adam. Adam was given that task. So he's cursed in that task. A couple of things, if you'll allow me a moment's digression, I always have to deal with this because people get wrong impressions from misunderstanding the Bible, all right? First of all, notice that work is not the curse. Work is not the curse. Genesis 2, God planted Adam in the garden, told him to work it and take care of it. Work is a good thing. It's a blessing from God. All right? It's an exercise of worship when done by a Christian to God, as unto the Lord. Okay? Work is not the curse. The curse is that now work's going to be by the sweat of your brow. Work's going to be difficult. Work's going to be hard. Right? That alarm bell is going to go off when it's 20 degrees out, and you got to get out and warm up the car and freeze until it does. you got to go to a job. You're going to have to put up with people that are complaining and moaning, and you're, you're going to have to do all these difficult things, especially people that work in blue-collar jobs, physical labor. Know what it is. Second thing I want to point out to you, though, look at the text. Verse 18, thorns and thistles. The curse affected the creation. Sin didn't only affect Adam. Sin didn't only affect Eve. Sin didn't only affect their roles and responsibilities. Sin affected the creation. Now instead of a garden, there's going to be thorns. There's going to be thistles. Here's a little hint. What was Jesus crowned with prior to his crucifixion? Thorns. He bears the curse on his head as he goes and pays the penalty for your sin and for mine. And, as Isaac Watts so rightly said, he comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, until there will be a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. I don't know about you, I'm kind of getting chills up and down my spine. It's a lot of fun, right? All right. So, men and women are the same. Men and women are different. Women were created companionship as a fit companion for man and has specific roles and responsibilities to fulfill in the dominion mandate. We learn that because the curse is gender specific. It's not the same for the man or for the woman. Look in 1 Corinthians 11 with me, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There may be some here who don't like this, so just get ready, okay? 
there is an inherent, innate order, hierarchical order in creation. And it's not egalitarian. Egalitarianism has to be one of the most pernicious philosophies of our day. All right? And it is just contrary to creation, and it's contrary to the Bible. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. I don't know if you've ever had to deal with this. Most people ask me, what about head coverings for women? All right, well, I'm not going there. You can talk to me later, all right? But notice, it's not cultural. It's not cultural. Paul says it's because of the angels. Paul says it's because of the angels. Now look up earlier, verse 3. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. There's an inherent, innate order, hierarchical order in creation. God, Christ, husband, wife, man, woman. All right? Woman was created for man. Now, lest anybody think this is demeaning, it's just not true. Turn to Proverbs 30, woman. Look at the ideal woman. Look at Proverbs 31. We kind of touched on this last week, but just to... We've already said men and women are equal. It's elevated the status of women. The Bible elevates the status of women, even when saying the woman was created for man. All right? Look at Proverbs 31. All right? Some people have thought of this as the superwoman. Some women read this and say, what, do you want me to work myself to death? You know, try and be to this woman. No, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an exaggerated manner of speaking. It's the ideal. It's like the picture of an ideal woman. But note, note some of the things that are said of the woman here. First of all, she's the ruler of her house. She's the ruler of her house. She's under the man's headship. We learn that from Genesis. We learn that from Ephesians. We learn that. But she's the manager. She's the supervisor of the house. Anybody, just talk to anybody that's married and has children, and they will tell you, you know, that the biggest joke in the world is when somebody asks a mom, oh, and where do you work? As if somehow taking care of a house isn't work. I don't know about you. I watch my wife. She, I get tired just looking at her. And, that, and all our kids are out of the house now, right? No. What does Proverbs say? She's the ruler of her house. She's a manager. She's a supervisor. Secondly, notice verse 10. She's strong. She's active. She's competent. An excellent wife who can down. She's far more precious than jewels. All right? Uh, I think I got the wrong word here. Anyway, um, the words also used uh, here, uh, competent, uh, for a soldier. That is, the portrayal of the woman here is not a woman that's weak or passive or overly emotional. But rather, you have a relationship of unity between the wife and the husband, which produces greater effectiveness. Third, 
Verse 26. Notice she teaches. Notice she teaches. Look at verse 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She teaches with wisdom. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. <clears throat> and anybody can, any, well, I hope, most parents who have, most, excuse me, most families that have mothers know the wisdom that is often imparted from mothers to children. And truth be known, from wives to husbands. She teaches wisdom, we're told. <clears throat> and look at what else, verse 26. The teaching of kindness is on her tongue. The word there for teaching is Torah. It's the law of God. This is why it's important, right, for Christian families to have family devotion so that uh, moms and women know the word of God. They know what they believe. They know why they believe it, right, because they need to teach it to others, all right? That, how to live according to God's word, infallible, inerrant word, right? Look at verses 18 and 24. She's an economic manager. Verse 18, she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She works long hours. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. And look at charity, works of charity. Verse 20, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hand to the needy. This is not a demeaning description of a Christian woman, is it? And lastly, the focus of the chapter, verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Now, you can ask Pastor Ragusa, because he's a much bigger scholar than I am, that Proverbs 31 is a chiasm, and he can explain that to you, except it's chi is cross. So you have text, I'm not doing this very well, but you have a text that forms an X, and it's a literary device to draw your attention to that which is where the cross meets, and that's the focus of what you're intended to receive from the whole chapter. Verse 23 is the center of that chiasm. It's the focus of Proverbs 31. Look, look. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Now, you need to know something about Old Testament society, I guess. The gates were where judgments were handed out. It would be like the courthouse, or it would be like the business center. It was where business transactions were conducted. You see this, for example, in the book of Ruth, all right? You see it elsewhere as well. The gates, all right? That's where the elders met, where they exercised rule in Israelite society. And notice, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. The whole point is, everything she does is for her husband. To be respected to be known as a man of integrity, to be known as a man blessed, to have a godly, God-fearing woman for a wife that can conduct all these affairs according to the word of God and for the glory of God. 
She's a suitable helper, fit for Adam. I hope you're with me. Men and women are equal. Men and women are different. Now, the word for helper, all the way back in Genesis 1, 2, sorry, does not mean inferior, all right? As a matter of fact, we sing, O God, our help in ages past. That word helper is most used of God in the Bible. Even evangelical feminists admit this. Gilbert Bilizikian, I hope I pronounced that right, in his book Beyond Sex Roles, he writes, it's now a matter of general knowledge that this Hebrew word for helper is not used in the Bible with reference to a subordinate purpose person such as a servant or underling. It's generally attributed to God when he is engaged in activities of relief and rescue among his people. Consequently, the word helper may not be used to draw inferences about subordinate female roles. If anything, the word points to the inadequacy and helplessness of man when he was bereft of the woman in Eden. She's the one who fills the emotional vacuum in Adam's life. Phyllis Tribal, another evangelical feminist, says, What the earth creature, her way of referring to Adam, needs is a companion, one who is neither subordinate nor superior, one who alleviates isolation through identity. Remember, it's not good for man to be alone. Bilizikian again, The image of God in Adam yearned for the presence of his female counterpart, without whom there was no fulfillment. Interesting. Secondly, Men and women are different in numerous ways. Hear me out. A man has been given the dominion mandate and carries it out externally. He goes to work. He labors by the sweat of his brow. Remember, his work is made difficult, right? That's what he does. That's how he fulfills the cultural mandate. It's external. We see this in popular movies, right? When guys want to go to the movie, what do they watch? Doctor Strange, (laughs) as the guys did this past week, right? Why? Because men are on a mission. They want to see a man on a mission. They want to go see a bang-bang shoot him up. They want to go see blood and guts. They want to see him wipe everybody out, right? Rambo. And the women go along for the ride all the time. Could be care less about Rambo or Doctor Strange. What do the women want to see at the movies? Rom-coms, chick flicks. Generalization here. Men and women are different. Man, man's orientation is external, all right? A woman's is internal. I mentioned to you previously a book by, and the author's name just went right out of my head. You just don't understand. It's about how men and women talk differently and relate differently. Men hierarchically, women horizontally. Fascinating book, secular sociologist, by the way. You can see this even biology. A man's biology is external. A woman's is internal. Men, generalizations here, right? Men tend to be rational, right? Something happens, want to fix it, figure it out. 
Women? More emotional. Doesn't mean men don't have emotions. Doesn't mean women can't think, please. Talking generalizations here, all right? Women are nurturers. And therefore, roles and responsibilities are different as a result of that. Third, these differences are fundamental, foundational, inherent, and innate, and they are denied at great danger. Where do you see them denied in our society? Second wave feminism, egalitarianism, gender blending. Facebook now has 51 varieties of gender because we, we don't even know who we are as created in the image of God. We've lost track. No. You deny these things at great risk and danger. Roles, responsibilities, our makeup, our orientation are seen and approached differently by men and by women. All right? Now, let me just a little bit more exaltation of women. I can't remember if I mentioned this in the past, but it needs to be said. The power of a woman is not direct. The power of a woman is indirect. And I think if you think about this, you'll agree with me. What's the power of a woman? Men want to please women. Husbands want to please their wives. Now just think about that. Do you realize what power that gives a woman? Yeah, man's the head, but woman's the neck that turns the head. And don't forget that. A woman's power is extremely powerful. I remember the day, Julie, this is years ago, not long after we were married, I said to Julie, we were having an argument, we were having a fight, and I said, you know, you ever start arguments like that? You know, I said to her, you know, you have enormous prerogative power over me. She said, what? I said, I want to please you. I want to be, you, do you realize how that can be wielded against me? We immediately reconciled. But that's the truth. And women, you need to realize this. Your power doesn't come from breaking the glass ceiling, climbing the corporate ladder, being elected president. Your power comes from being godly, God-fearing, and living according to the word of the Lord with all these things. Okay. That's enough for today. Next week, Today we talk about differences. Next week, vive la différence. Thank God for the difference.
in men and women. Little sneak preview. Until then, let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we come to you and give you thanks for your creation. We give you thanks for Jesus Christ, the second Adam, and new creation in him. That if anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. We thank you for your transforming power. We thank you for that word by which we have been born again. We pray that you would help lead and guide us by that word into fruitful lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.